0: I'm Autumn Lockett,
1: and this is Mitch Randall,
0: and you're listening to Good Faith Weekly.
1: Welcome to Good Faith Weekly. On this episode, Autumn and I are going to catch up after my trip out to San Diego, California, to participate in the BioLogos 2022 Faith and Science Conference. We're going to talk about that. We're also going to talk about poor Vladimir's generals are not telling him the truth. And yes, we are going to spend a little time talking about the slap heard around the country Last week at the Oscars, when Will Smith stormed on the stage to slap Chris Rock, not going to spend a lot of time about it, uh, talking about it, but uh, we are going to allude to it uh, during the segment this this week. So, hope you're having a good week. Stay tuned; it's going to be a good episode.
0: Rainforest, volcanoes, coastlines with crystal blue water, fresh fruit, and seafood. Join Good Faith Media for an immersive experience on Hawaii's Big Island. Discover brilliant night skies with our friend, astrophysicist Paul Wallace. Explore and have fun with your small group of adventurers. Join us May 21st through the 28th. Learn more at faithexperiences.org.
1: Autumn, welcome me back from California.
0: Yes, welcome back. The wind, I'm sure, just blew your little airplane straight into the into the Oklahoma City airport because we are in quite the gust storm these yeah, days.
1: Yeah, I mean, it sounds like a wind tunnel uh, out mm-hmm. there the last, the whole week since I got back. Uh, it's been really, really crazy. It was really warm when we landed in Oklahoma City. The next day, a cold front came in, bringing storms associated with it, and now it's Freezing again in the forties mm-hmm. with the wind gusting out of the north, but hopefully spring's gonna spring here a little bit, and uh, we'll get some yes. warmer temperatures and, and calmer winds. Uh, but uh, yeah, it's good to be back. I had a great time out in California, Autumn.
0: Yeah, and you were we ta- we alluded to a little bit last week, but really wanted to dig in now that you've had some time to to process your notes and to look back over everything that you learned when you were there. That faith and science are not enemies.
1: They're not enemies. In fact, I write about it uh, this week in my uh, column uh, posted Thursday at goodfaithmedia.org. And one of the things that was fascinating about the BioLogos conference in itself was that it was primarily scientists, and the conversation usually began this way. Well, I was a scientist and an atheist, but I came to the conclusion that science can't answer all of life's questions. Therefore, I needed to know why I mattered. And mm. so I began to explore, ran into this character by the name of uh, J.R. Token or uh, um. The Shadowlands guy. C.S. <laughs> Lewis. C.S. Lewis, thank you. I don't I'm know an,
0: why. am going to your Christian card, actually, for that one. I'm sorry. <laughs>
1: yeah, I, I deserve to give that away <laughs> on that one. Uh, or Lewis, and both Lewis and yeah. Tolkien uh, were really instrumental in bringing a lot of these scientists into faith and making it rational for them, and, and it was just a fascinating conversation. Almost all the scientists who told their personal stories, uh, one of those two scholars were involved in uh, their gravitation to faith. And so uh, it it was fascinating to to hear those personal stories. One of the conclusions that uh, was drawn from the conference was the need for scientists to be more vocal about their faith, because there is this huge misconception in the world that all scientists are atheists. Now, there are quite a few who are atheists, but It does not mean that all of them are atheists. In fact, there is a vast majority or a vast uh, amount of scientists uh, who profess Jesus as their Lord, who attend Christian services, Uh, other people of faith, uh, Muslims, Buddhists. Uh, and and so we can't we just we we just can't paint with broad strokes and just give in to this uh, media conception that has been perpetuated by right wing media that all scientists are faithless um, secularists that have no use for faith whatsoever, and so that 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 was really really eye opening to me. Uh, of course, the founder, Dr. Francis Collins, the author of uh, the language of God, best time, or New York Times bestseller book, uh, you know, instrumental in the, the discovery of the genome, the codes of the genome project, Human Genome Project, and then you know probably more famous for being Dr. Anthony Fauci's boss at uh, NIH, but uh, he he really talked about his faith and the importance of science. Did not delude his faith whatsoever. In fact, science helped him appreciate his faith more so because you look at the complexities of this world that once you dive into it, it is hard to imagine that, that there is not something cognitive behind it, that there is a designer, in other words. And so it was really, really great to, to listen to him.
2: But there was a lot of great speeches.
0: Yeah. Uh, as I was reading your article, um, there was a section that um, they talked about how that science can't explain why we matter, but that faith sometimes can't explain, like, how things happen, um, something to that effect. And that was really powerful.
1: Yeah. I mean, noted theologian, Oxford trained Oxford professor, Alistair McGrath, I mean, who, with his accent alone, you just. Still, and a name <laughs>
0: like Alistair, you got to <laughs> believe him, right? I mean, right. credibility just baked in.
1: That's right. Uh, so he was speaking and he said, you know, uh, growing up, he wanted to be a scientist. In fact, he was training to be a scientist. And he came to the conclusion later on in life that as much as he loved science, as much as he appreciated and valued uh, this discipline, he began to recognize science could only take humanity so far in answering the questions of the universe. And so he made this uh, kind of gaffe of that, uh, you know, science can tell me how far the stars are away, are away from the world, but it can't tell me why I matter.
2: Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And
1: and he said, you know, faith can't tell me how far the, the stars are away from the earth, but it can tell me why I matter. And mm-hmm. I thought that was a wonderful way of looking at those two. Uh, and if, you know, I had an Old Testament professor a long time ago uh, tell me, you know, science and faith are not bitter enemies in fact they complement each other very well as long as they answer the questions that they are created to answer and the Old Testament professor put it this way that science answers the how and faith answers the who mm-hmm. um, and I thought that was I thought that was a good way of clarifying it I would take it even further, and not only say faith answers the question of who, but it also gives us the answer of why. Yeah, and and yeah. so, uh, so uh, it, it was a wonderful, a wonderful conference. I recommend going to the conference uh, to the listeners uh, if it's in your area. Log on to the Biologos website, see what they're all about. Now, I will say uh, this about the conference that. Uh, the that a lot of the speakers came from the reformed tradition and so there's some calvinistic overtones to the language that you hear from some of the founders as well as some of the participants. And and, and don't get me wrong, that's not a criticism, uh, but just know going in that a lot of talk about the sovereignty of God and the grandeur of God, and therefore there must be this grand designer who is orchestrating the creation of the world and is instrumental in the ongoings of the world. Now. Those of us who are a little bit more Arminian, I'm, I'm really geeking out on theology here for a second.
0: Yeah, I was about to press the geek alert, but <laughs> I was going to let you finish your sentence.
1: Uh, but those of us who are more Arminian in our thought process, meaning that we believe that God created humanity with um, a conscience and a free will— that there is this beautiful relationship between the grand designer and orchestrator of life and the freedom that he infused within his creation in order to make important decisions. Uh, but, and one of those decisions that came across in the conference is that we, as people of faith, need to be at the forefront of taking care of this earth— And so climate change is real. There's no disputing that fact whatsoever. It is simple science. It is really looking at data and knowing how to add and subtract. That's pretty much it. If anybody knows how to add and subtract, they can see that climate change is real. I know what you're going to say. There are people. You who- <laughs> know what? I'm, you saw
0: my face. You saw my face. some of the combatants of climate change potentially can't do those things, right? Well, and so we'll just bless their heart and move on. That's right. Another element of your of your article that I thought was interesting was that it talked about how people of science. Um, when they are confronted with new data, with new facts, that they change their mind. When you know better, you, you change and you adapt and that science is always adapting. And that's not science being weak. That's science being evolutionary and being able to move forward. And I think that's another element that people of faith need to layer into our sort of pattern of life too, that when you know more and when you learn new things, that it's okay to change and to morph and to grow in your thought and to progress. And I think both of of these sort of segments of life share that.
1: Oh my gosh, I could not say that any Better because you know as they the, of course a lot of the conversations stemmed from what happened during the pandemic, especially with Francis Collins uh, leading the effort uh, across really the country, but also the world in trying to find a vaccine and how to address the uh, virus early on. You remember early on it was you know oh wear a mask oh don't wear it. you don't have to wear a mask oh well yeah you do need to wear a mask, and what he was saying is that what the public was witnessing was science processing data out in the open. It wasn't in a lab anymore. And so it wasn't they were flip-flopping or changing their minds. It was they were responding to the data that they were collecting at a rapid speed. And the more data that they discovered and analyzed, the better conclusions they could draw and therefore offer better evolving or uh, solutions to how to respond to the virus uh, in real time. And what you said about faith perfectly parallels that. I've always said if Jesus were to come back today, um, I think he would be really disappointed if he came back and saw that our belief system and our actions were just like the first century church. Mm -hmm. Because surely, surely over 2,000 years— we would have discovered more about God, and we have you know, asked deeper questions and discovered deeper answers and done more amazing things uh, with our faith, because that's what we're challenged to do. Jesus did that all the time when he said, uh, you have heard it said, but I say to you,
0: Yes. Otherwise, why leave us here so long? You know what I mean? (laughs) Like, what's the point of leaving us here if we're not supposed to learn more and grow more and ask more and move and I just think it's lazy and science and faith and really whatever elements you are in to just sit down on your lazy haunches and say, this is what I know, leave me alone. Yeah, uh, That's just lazy. And, and we don't live in a time when it's okay to be lazy.
1: I agree wholeheartedly. Well, speaking of getting good information and making decisions based upon accurate data, Poor Vladimir Putin is not <laughs> is not getting uh, he's not getting the truth told to him. Autumn by his top generals, uh, it was revealed this week uh, by intelligence services here in the United States that uh, in fact his, some of his top generals have been lying to him about the state of the war, and I just I found it. I hate to use this word amusing because we're still under this horrible war where people are dying, Mm -hmm. but it is also somewhat... Terrifying to think that he's making decisions based upon false information. Mm-hmm. Um, because, you know, as far as he was concerned, what he was hearing was, you know, things are going according to plan. But all across Western Europe and uh, the United States, uh, he's waking up to this morning discovering that what he's been told is not true and that the war is actually going really bad for the Russians. So good news for the
0: rest of us. Right. And I'm going to zoom in because this is where I can apply things where it makes sense. But as a parent, Mm -hmm. you know, we want our kids to have open lines of communication with us. And if the first time they come to us with something that's a little squirmy, we fly off the handle and we're scary and we're not approachable they're not going to come to us with the truth from now on. And this is why when you have a country led by someone who doesn't have anyone who says, hey, let me let me check in with you about this. When there's not a balance of powers, when there's not a two party system, when there's not voting and democracy and and all of these things, you have just unchecked power and it corrupts like famously. So,
1: yeah, I mean, we're seeing the direct results uh, and consequences of what an authoritarian regime brings and a dictatorship. Um, They want all the benefits of a dictatorship and authoritarianism. Uh, They want people to fear them. They want power. They want wealth. They want control. But when you And a
0: legacy, right? That's this whole land grab situation he's doing.
1: Absolutely. But when you— Uh, implement these uh, ideals into your governing or ruling uh, practice, then there's also consequences to that. And that is, if you kill your political enemies— your friends are not going to tell you the truth. They're going to tell you what you want to hear because yep. they don't want to die because they have right. seen you kill other people. Uh, right. So it's just, it's, it's been, a, uh, it's been a fascinating couple of months. Again, I don't want to make, uh, Don't make light of this at all Because it's just a horrible situation We continue to pray for the Ukrainians uh, For uh, President Zelensky For their troops uh, For all the refugees That are fleeing the country For all of those people Who are dying in this war uh, Our heart grieves for them But it has been interesting To see how really weak Russia is And how Mm -hmm. uh, disconjointed they are from, you know, having to, to, to pull these things off because, you know, this should have been a pretty easy victory for them as uh, they invaded Ukraine. I think everybody anticipated that. And the big surprise right. is to see how uh, disjointed they really are.
0: Yeah, they are. And and I know he's really problematic not quite as problematic as Putin. But I feel like Putin needs to have like a Dr. Phil moment where Dr. Phil's like, <laughs> how's that working for you? <laughs> Like, have we thought about sending Dr. Phil over there?
1: Well, I've thought about it several times sending Dr. (laughs) Phil somewhere. No take backs, (laughs) no take backs. (laughs) Yeah, man, Dr. Oz, they can have them both.
0: It's a twofer. <laughs> We've got a deal for you, Russia. <laughs> we can maybe layer in a couple other people, too. <laughs> Speaking of people, we might want to layer, right, yeah, into going.
1: Yeah. I really don't want to talk about this, but it's in the news. I was actually out in Los Angeles uh, after San Diego visiting my son, Uh, when the uh, Oscars took place on Sunday night. In fact, we were just miles away from uh, the venue itself. Could you hear the
0: slap? Could you hear it?
1: (laughs) Yeah, it echoed all the way over into Glendale, California. Yeah. But, um, yes, uh, actor Will Smith, who is now Oscar winner, Academy Award winner, uh, Will Smith, uh, walked on stage after comedian Chris Rock made a a joke, and it was... to, to be honest about it, I mean, it was tactless uh, about uh, Jada P. Smith's uh, head, who she's got this condition that she loses her hair. Uh, and so he makes this, this joke, and then Will Smith stands up, walks onto stage, and slaps Chris Rock across the face and then continues to debrate him from his seat after he returns uh, apparently according to the academy awards they ask Will Smith to leave uh, he refused to leave and was able to stay he later won uh, best actor for his portrayal of uh, uh, Vanessa or uh, Venus and Serena Williams's father Richard Williams Um, and when he received the award, he got a standing ovation by the room and it's just, it's, it's, it's taken over a lot of media outlets. People keep talking about it. We're talking about it. Uh, but I don't know how to put this. I mean, I tweeted out really quickly after that happened to stay focused America because there are bigger things in the world than this. Uh, and I really, truly believe that. I mean, war in Ukraine, war in Myanmar, uh, people are suffering across this country financially. Uh, mental health is still a huge problem in this country after coming through the pandemic. So lots of other more important topics to discuss uh, in the world than this. But what was your reaction to it?
0: So my counterpoint to that, I understand what you're saying. My counterpoint is that statistically, when we are in crisis, um, as a people, as a community, as individuals, we really lean on entertainment as an escape. And I think that has been especially true in the past couple of years. You know, um, things like horror films really skyrocketed after 9-11 because we wanted to be scared in a way that we could control in a way that would be tied up with a bow at the end of it. And I think that, I mean, you have a kid in the entertainment industry. There's a lot of folks who are really relying on that sort of population of folks to distract us from what's going on and it's important to yes we have to watch the news we have to see informed we have to do what we can but we also sometimes need to like take a break and just watch Bob's Burgers you know and that's and I think that's maybe what the Oscars was and people were watching it to see the pretty dresses to hear the speeches to see you know me as a parent I have this like long list of movies that someday I'm going to have time to watch (laughs) these Oscar winners and so looking at who's nominated and who wins and then just to see this just violence we're sort of over violence we're sick of it and I think it was a shock to people who were looking to this as a place to escape yeah. and then it ended up being just another negative place for us. Yeah.
1: You know, And, and as and I agree with you wholeheartedly, I mean, entertainment certainly is our, our best escapism that we have. Uh, professional sports would be that for some. Uh, and it's a shame that uh, that got marred, uh, that situation marred over all some really cool things happened, such as mm-hmm. uh, Lady Gaga bringing out Liza Minnelli, which was just a beautiful, beautiful moment. Precious. And, yep. and then the, the, the cast of CODA winning Academy Awards. I mean, there was some, great moments that, you know, it started to feel a little bit normal. I mean, coming out of the pandemic and then
0: this, nobody was masked. Yeah, was, right?
1: yeah, yeah. And then, and then this happens. And so, but yeah, you know, as a, as a father of a comedian who's trying to break through, I mean, it is a little alarming uh that people, you know, could possibly rush the stage now if they don't like one of his jokes and hit him. Uh, it just seemed... throw
0: tomatoes like they used to at Fuzzy Bear. <laughs> Come on, it's good enough for the Muppets. Well, you know, I mean,
1: comedians are used to getting heckled. I mean, that just happens. I mean, that's the give and take between the audience uh, and the performer. Uh, that's that's part of it. Uh, you know, there's certainly a line um, that entertainers don't attempt to cross, and they hope that the audience respects that line as well. Sometimes comedians step over that line and the industry tries to correct them when they do. Um, and usually that you know means you're going to lose work, you're going to lose contracts, things like that. But uh, yeah, it was, it was just strange. Now the one thing I do have to say about the whole event itself was I don't know Chris Rock. I don't know Will Smith. I have no judgment on them as individuals. I do have some thoughts on this one act, but I have to say, Chris Rock can take a punch because that dude got slapped on national television. And went right back to delivering that award with like not skipping a beat. So I was just, Mm -hmm. I would have been, I would have been crushed. I would have been like, you know, crying and whimpering and, you know, calling out Will Smith for slapping me and walking off stage and stuff like that. But man, he kept his cool and uh, he kept delivering uh, the the award. So it was, it was an interesting blip on the calendar for us. Uh, I know that many of you may have, Hot opinions about that as well. And if you do, uh, please send all of those to Autumn Lockett. Uh, she would love to talk yes, to you about and, it. <laughs> and
0: here's going to be my response. Like, I'll go ahead and say it now. I'll type it out, save it as a template if you have problems to, to tell me about. I, I also think there's something to do with the fact that we've all been through a lot collectively as a world for the past two years. And nerves are frayed. And emotions are close to the skin. And... Um, We all are lacking a little bit of self-control that may have been there. And therapy is important. Finding safe places to talk through how you're feeling without using your hands is important. And I just would encourage all of you to to consider therapy because I think it's good for everyone. (laughs)
1: I would say add a big amen to that. So thanks for the reminder, Autumn. Well, you and I get to sit down with a very interesting scholar this week, Sam Perry, who is a professor. A neighbor. A neighbor. He's a professor at the University of Oklahoma. Uh, I was in Washington, D.C. a few weeks ago preaching at Riverside Baptist Church uh, there in uh, the District of Columbia and uh, opened up the Washington Post and read a report by a committee that talked about the rise of radicalism within white Christian nationalism, and lo and behold, Sam was part of that report. And so we brought him on the pod this week to talk about that report, talk about some of the trends that he is seeing within white Christian nationalism and why we as a people of good faith need to combat that rising tide. And So it's a great conversation. He's got a new book out that he's going to tell you about, so we want to encourage you to stay tuned, and Sam Perry be up next
2: marvel at Pacific Coast Wells, wonder in rainforests, explore wild coastlands and towering cliffs. Join Good Faith Media for a unique and immersive experience in the Pacific Northwest and Olympic National Park. Enjoy engaging conversation with your small group of adventurers led by our team, which includes a journalist, historian, and theologian. Join us July the 23rd through 30th. Learn more at faithexperiences.org.
1: Welcome back to Good Faith Weekly. On this episode, we've got a very special guest all the way from across town here in Norman, Oklahoma, an award-winning scholar and teacher at the University of Oklahoma. Dr. Samuel Perry is among the nation's leading experts on conservative Christianity and American politics, race, sexuality, and families. Along with numerous articles published in leading academic journals, Dr. Perry has also authored or co-authored four books, including Growing God's Family, Addicted to Lust, Taking America Back for God, and his forthcoming book, The Flat and the Cross, which is due out April 1st of this year, about how the scientific study of religion benefits all of society, and another book about how culture, wars, and consumer markets shape English Bibles. Dr. Perry, welcome to Good Faith Weekly.
2: Hey, thanks so much for having me.
1: All right, so Dr. Perry, I have to admit, I was in Washington D.C. a couple of weeks ago, and I was preparing to uh, deliver a sermon at Riverside Baptist Church uh, down uh, in the Wharf District. And I opened up the post, and I was reading this article, and lo and behold, University of Oklahoma jumps out at me. And I thought, Oh my goodness, there's there's a you know a fellow Sooner here. So you participated in a report a few weeks ago in D.C. hosted by the Congregational Free Thought Caucus. The briefing was entitled, God is on Our Side, White Christian Nationalism and the Capital Insurrection. The report revealed a deep concern that is becoming more radical and targeting voters. So just briefly, can you kind of explain your involvement in the report and you know, how that report came to be?
2: Sure. So uh, my co-author and I, Andrew Whitehead, after writing our book, Taking America Back for God, we've been collecting uh several years of data along with several other colleagues and we've been writing about this topic and so i, I think our contribution to that report was to try to understand uh, the prevalence uh, of, of christian nationalism as an ideology in the american population uh, our contribution hasn't been so much to say diagnose the events of january 6th the symbolism of course all of us saw all of those uh things going on and we were shocked as anybody Uh, But I think what we have contributed to the conversation is trying to understand the underlying ideology uh, and those foundations that might give covering to or even give rise to that kind of white Christian nationalist response to, say, perceptions that one is uh, having an election taken from them, that one is Mm -hmm. under attack from various uh, forces of elites and politicians and the media and how people are responding to that, and even reinterpreting the events of January 6th in a more positive uh, light. We're starting to document those kinds of things, and so we want to understand the scope of white Christian nationalism, and specifically in that report, how it informs our understanding of what took place January 6th.
1: So before we get into some of the findings of the report, Dr. Perry, you know, one of the things that I just really found a relief in is that there are those of us who have been you know, working within the church, working within faith communities that has seen this continued rise of Christian nationalism across the country. And we've been seeing it for decades. Uh, I'm former Southern Baptist. I got kicked out of Southern Baptist because of my beliefs, um, and we have been combating this, uh, this fusion of church-state. Uh, in ideology and now practice. And so when we saw the events unfold on January 6th of uh, 2021, we were just all appalled. But also, we saw, it was like, yeah, we saw this coming. And we were we were shocked by it, but some of us were not so much as shocked because of the rhetoric that we have heard for decades, this is the culmination of this intensifying of rhetoric that we've seen in the country. So what brought, I mean, why, why this focus? Is it, is it just, is it now, was it just the insurrection or have we been seeing other outliers emerge that has now brought scholars and politicians together and thinkers together to say, okay, what's going on here?
2: Yeah, absolutely. So, uh, it, it, uh, it has been building for a long, long time, and in fact, it, and uh, Phil Gorski and I have a book that uh, drops at the end of this week, "The Flag and the Cross," and what we we actually begin that book by talking about the capital insurrection, best thought of as an eruption of forces mm-hmm. that have been building for a long, long time. So the, those things were roiling beneath the surface, uh, as you said. That there is this is not uh, as as my colleague Andrew Whitehead says, a sho- the event was shocking but not surprising, right? Mm-hmm. Shocking in its in its in its extent and its chaotic. Uh, violence and yet not surprising considering the kinds of things that we have seen set in motion for for a long long time uh, and there's a variety of things going on there i mean i think uh you have religious and racial and political realignments going on over the last few decades in the united states where let's give some examples um the republican party and i and i'm i'm not trying to be partisan here i'm just kind of documenting what is what is taking place statistically the republican party has moved toward ideological purity faster than the Democratic Party has. The Democratic Party is still very much a coalition of, you can get conservative black Protestants and liberal mainliner uh, Christians and a lot of secular Americans all moving around within this group. It's very racially diverse, and politicians have to speak to that kind of diversity. The Republican Party, by contrast, has moved toward conservative and extremely conservative at a lot faster pace. Uh, they are becoming disproportionately white and disproportionately white Christian or white even more. So that being said, what you have is uh, a unify a more unified group of of people that Republicans Republican leaders can speak to, mobilize, and activate with this kind of consistent rhetoric of of we are being persecuted, we are being targeted, our America is being taken away from us. Christian nationalism is a part of that story. It's a part of that. It's a part of that narrative. And uh, just to you know, uh, jump off of that, Christian nationalism is also within context understood globally as a part of this broader movement that we are seeing of of what I would call ethno-traditionalism, that is like, hey, we need to go back as a culture to this kind of ethno-culture, this this, this way of life where people like us were in charge, where we had all the cultural and political power. The Christian nationalism, white Christian nationalism in the United States, is a brand of this kind of populist ethno-traditionalism that we're seeing take place in uh, Hungary and Russia and uh, you know, Brazil and other places around uh, uh, India, and not not even the Christian kind, right? Like, it's just uh, the Hindutva movement. You've got that kind of populist authoritarian ethno-traditionalism taking place. So, in the United States, uh, in, in our particular context, uh, you've got a, a group of people who are increasingly feeling targeted uh like that that the country that belongs to them rightfully and if you are a white christian conservative american that is the narrative that you've been told that the country was founded by people like you for people like you and that activist judges and the libs and obama especially have been trying to take it from you and so mix that with a whole lot of misinformation uh and a lot of conspiratorial thinking already (laughs) and uh and uh and and after the election, I mean, you 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 know you've you've got an eruption of those kinds of forces that say, "Hey, we're we're not going to take it anymore." In fact, when you when you look at the prayer, I was just writing about this uh, today. In fact, when you look at the prayer of that QAnon shaman on the mm-hmm. on the Senate mm-hmm. chamber, uh, it is remarkably consistent. The words that he uses remarkably consistent with the kind of rhetoric that we are seeing. He thanks his heavenly father for filling that that uh, right. that chamber. With patriots that love God and that love Christ, uh, and and for allowing those those rioters to to send a message to the communists and the tyrants and the globalists that this is our nation, not theirs, that America will be reborn as what it was supposed to be, right? Like you have this kind of narrative of something being try, trying trying uh, these people are trying to steal it from us. We have taken it back with your power. Uh, and, uh, you know, I think even though the Capitol insurrection is obviously an extreme example, I think the underlying ideology of white Christian nationalism is something that has been building, uh, stoked by far-right politicians uh, and in churches uh, and in these forces that I think are feeding into this kind of misinformation, conspiracy, but also that narrative of the country belongs to us, not you.
0: hmm so in a Washington Post report about the briefing, you research, your research has a powerful correlation between people who subscribe to Christian nationalist beliefs and anti-democratic beliefs. You touched on that a little bit earlier. What is in your research that indicates this conclusion?
2: Right. So in in, in our surveys, and we have just been really blessed to, uh, within the last two or three years, collect data uh uh, data set after data set we've got this you know we've gotten these resources to be able to collect what's called panel data more on that in a little bit but basically what that means is like we follow the same group of americans over a period of two years starting Mm -hmm. pre-covid and post covid so we go from like august 2019 to august 2021 we've been following these americans and asking them similar questions sometimes different questions Uh, and so what we found right before the election so but this is before there was any even any talk of stolen election October 2020, we we give a survey to these Americans, and we ask them to how much they agree with statements like, we make it too easy to vote already in this country, and, you know, the various kinds of things that they would support. And we found that Christian nationalism, especially among white Americans, is strongly associated. It's one of the most powerful predictors that you believe, we already make it too easy to vote, even before the election, uh, that you would support hypothetical laws that would require civics tests in order to vote. That's like Jim Crow kind Mm. of requirement. Yeah, it it is some kind of barrier that uh, you would disenfranchise certain felons for life. Uh, That you think voter fraud is rampant again, even before the election. That you think voter fraud in the election is already rampant. Uh, Just the opposite. Uh, That you don't think voter suppression is a problem at all. Right, like that hasn't been going on at all. That you would um, that you don't necessarily uh, you don't necessarily envision a society being improved by everybody participating in in democracy. Uh, that one that happened just recently, this is, this is one that we collected, even after the, the book that Phil and I wrote together, we collected this in August 2021, and I'm writing about this right now. We asked Americans whether you think voting is a right or a privilege. Right? It's just a simple question. Is voting a right or is it a privilege? Uh, and thankfully, the majority of Americans are, are very much of the opinion that voting is a right. But the more white Americans subscribe to Christian nationalism, it basically is a linear trend more you affirm wow. Christian nationalist beliefs, the more you're likely to say that it is a privilege, not a right. Why is that important? Well, because it's a privilege, then it is something that we can take away from you. Mm-hmm. That is something that you can lose. Uh, if it's a right, it is something that shall not be infringed, uh, and you can't make it more difficult for people to access a right. But if it's a privilege, then hey, it's got it's got to be something you earn, and it's got to be something that you we can take away if we want. And so I, this is what I mean by, sure. by white Christian nationalism is anti-democratic in that it is— uh, it is it is it is of the opinion, or it tends to be of the opinion, that only the worthy, only people like us, uh, should be allowed to participate in uh, political representation in the kind of country that we want to to build, and that is antithetical, of course, to uh, our founding principles and what uh, I think we would all like to say America is about.
1: Yeah, there were some outstanding uh, reporting uh, that took place uh, in the report itself. Uh, As I read through it, there were some things there that were both extremely insightful and, quite frankly, terribly terrifying (laughs) at the same time. Um, And so there's some conclusions I I want you to to expand upon. Um, One of these is the point that white Christian nationalism and Christianity are not one and the same. And I think that is a, an important delineation, especially for our, our audience who are people of faith, uh, who prescribe to the Christian tradition, but often get lumped into this Christian nationalism movement within the United States. Uh, those two are not the same. Can you expand on that?
2: Yeah, and this is something that we try to emphasize in all of our books. And and I would even say that uh, – I'll go even further. Uh, Christian nationalism is not the same as white evangelical. Mm. Right, so I think people people often assume that. uh, In matter of fact, I had to correct a, a a podcast host the other day who I was saying white Christian nationalism, and he kept saying white evangelical nationalism or something like that. You right, know? Right, like, right, right, right. And it's like this is this is not what I'm not what I'm talking about. I'm not just talking about like white evangelicals, even though you know your your listeners can't see this, but the the Venn diagram of Christian nationalism and white evangelical is not a is not a circle, right? Like it, they are. It's they are, close are, though, they're, right? They're <laughs> <laughs> They're close. <laughs> uh, they are certainly close, but there are, there are white evangelicals and certainly lots of Christians who are terrified by what they see in Christian nationalism. They reject it completely, and they say that is inconsistent. In fact, Southern Baptists. I mean, even though Southern Baptists, if we want to use them as an example, and I can show you this data statistically, like Southern Baptists have been moving far right quickly. Uh, they are statistically speaking, they are they are increasing in their adherence to Christian nationalism. Ideology, yet historically, in their own founding document or not founding documents, but in their own legacy, mm-hmm. religious freedom, religious liberty, uh, autonomy in that respect was always something that they prided themselves on. As a yeah. as look a at
0: him preaching to the choir. I
1: know. I mean, yeah, I mean, you can't you can't listen to uh, George Truett's uh, sermon on the steps of the Capitol uh, and not uh, understand the the legacy of Southern Baptist. Yeah, their uh, their. Adherence towards separation of church and state, and even more recently, exactly. in fact, I think uh, Russell Moore was actually at the uh, the report the other day, or at least commented on the report. You mm-hmm. know, he was a staunch supporter of separation of church and state. Got him in trouble. You know, right. he lost his job at the Southern Baptist Convention. But there are people within the Southern Baptist Convention that believe exactly what you're saying. So you're exactly right.
2: Right And so and, and so we want to be very clear that we are not talking about all Christians when we're right. talking about Christian nationalism, when, when we're talking about white Christian nationalism specifically, we're talking what I would describe as more of an ethnocultural and political orientation that, that is that is more like I said this on Twitter the other day, like it, it is be increasingly statistically even and I descriptively I think this is more accurate to talk about a, a rather than a Christian right, uh, to talk about a pro-Christian right, right? Like it is, it is. Where where Chris identifying as a Christian, even uh, even identifying as a Christian doesn't matter as much as whether or not you are for a particular kind of ethnocultural hegemony or an ethnocultural like um, supremacy of white conservative Christian politics, cultural values, and that kind of. And you want to see that int- institutionalized in American culture and politics uh, in a way that. Uh, you feel like even if you're not a Christian, it just means good people like us are in charge and not the other guys, not the bad
1: guys.
2: Right. So Christian nationalism is not the same as being a Christian, not the same as being a white evangelical or a Southern Baptist. Um, and, and in fact, oftentimes we find, and we we talk about this at length in our first book, Taking America Back for God, uh, that oftentimes we find that uh, once we account for Christian nationalism in our in our little statistical models, the more religious you are, uh, we actually find it often goes in the more op- the opposite direction. So, for example, Christian nationalism has often been associated with xenophobia, uh, you know, fear of outsiders, racial prejudice, uh, you know, rejection of any kind of gun legislation. You know, all, all those all those kinds of all those kinds of things. We find that once we account for Christian nationalist ideology in our statistical models, the more religious you are, the the, the, the less xenophobic you are, the, the less racially prejudiced you are, the more in favor you are of say common sense gun legislation kind of like regulation at all um what this suggests to us is that um once we remove the effect of christian nationalist ideology from say our 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 hypothetical or kind of statistical survey of people um we find that religions religious commitment seems to be associated with being more pro-social uh more pro-democratic but the kind of neighbors that you would want in other words so
0: Somebody right. who is
2: very religious but is not a Christian nationalist would be the kind of person that, mm-hmm. that that you would like to live next to. They seem like a kind of winsome, tolerant, inclusive kind of person. Not like those things are just the greatest values and 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 that we you know that we need to hold those things as the highest priority. But those are the things that we feel like are basically the opposite of what we're getting with Christian nationalism. Seems very exclusivist, uh, very into hierarchies. Uh, very into rigid authoritarian means of social control. And with religious people, we don't necessarily, with people, once we account for Christian nationals, the people who are more religious seems to be more pro-social democratic. authoritarian. And I think that, I think, confirms that, like, uh, we're not talking about religious people necessarily or committed Christians. We're talking about people who adhere to a particular um, ideology. I also want to be clear that uh, we're not talking about Uh, Hey, you know, Christians, you can't vote your values. Like you keep your faith out of our politics, you know, like that, that that is an impossibility. (laughs) Like, we always will vote our values, our values are always shaped by our culture and religious commitments are a part of that. So we're not trying to say Christians can't be uh, patriots and into politics, uh, that they need to keep their religious noses out of it. We're not saying that at all. and 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 several of the writers, I won't speak for my co-authors, that we are Christians, and 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 we are concerned about this kind of thing. I was on that panel uh, with Jamar Tisby, and Jamar mm-hmm. Tisby share a common uh, religious identity, not in common with, say, Andrew Seidel, who is also on that panel, who is an atheist and and right. speaks for other interests. But we are united in our belief that Christian nationalism is a problem and is contributing to a lot of, uh, I think, division and chaos uh, in our world. But.
0: And and not just in our world, you know, a lot of our listeners are uh, faith leaders, they're pastors, they're laity, um, leadership in the church. And so this thing that you're describing that the more religious you are, either takes you like sort of to this extreme, or if you're being influenced by Christian nationalism, it can take you to this extreme. This explains a lot of the sort of friction that we're Mm -hmm. seeing within the church and why I, I think this also can't speak some much to what we're hearing about ch- church attendance dwindling because people sense that friction and there is friction in every part of our lives right now we have we're in a pandemic we have a war raging we you know their fuel costs all these things that are happening why would we want to spend our sunday morning holding tension in a room with people. And, and what do we do with that? And I think pastors are, they're really trying, they've got feet in two separate tectonic plates and it's really tricky business.
1: Yeah, absolutely. Well, Dr. Perry, another conclusion that we read in the report is how easily Christian nationalists are susceptible to misinformation and lies Uh, during the pandemic. It was just paramount. And, and then of course, heightened on the, the, the whole issue of stop the steal but not That's only right. are they susceptible to these lies dr perry they believe in these lies so much that they are deeply and i mean deeply committed to defending them did you get any evidence to understand why they are
2: yeah absolutely so uh christian nationalism is at bottom uh about us versus them tribalism right so it is and so when when you are that deep into um it, when you are that deep into a a particular view that that is really committed to a sense of being persecuted and aggrieved, uh, that something is being stolen from you. Uh, that narrative is is part and parcel of, of of Christian nationalism, that this country was Christian. Uh, it used to be, this kind of bastion of values and uh biblical worldview and and all of these, I I think what are what are largely myths of of, of our own like heritage and legacy. Um then you feel like you look at the country now, and you feel like, hey, this really that really fits into a narrative of something being robbed by uh, you know uh, various parties. Oftentimes, people that you don't even know, you're just kind of told, like, hey, these people are coming after you and taking your taking your stuff, taking what's yours, and trying to twist our country and, and uh, uh you know uh, deface it, um, and wrecking the prosperity of our, our our once great nation. I mean, that was Trump's promise: is make America great again, taking it back for the good people like us. I mean, it's just quote after quote, Trump would say like, Hey, we're going to make it, we're going to rally around Christianity. We're going to make this, this this is going to be the thing that unites us and saves us. And so, um, when you are, when you are that deep in that kind of like tribal, uh, mentality, uh, you are suspicious of, of anything that, that even hints at, you know, something that is criticizing you, or that is, that is a loss for you. That is, uh, that 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 questions the narrative of, of your own righteousness and 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 inevitable victory uh, to where losses just become these catastrophic uh, events where you just you know you couldn't interpret your world if you 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 would understand that like this this is hey America is just not responding to this kind of thing and all Americans by and large don't want this so the conspiracy mindset is is I think um, goes along with uh the distrust of of anybody outside of our group and that is that is broadly speaking the elites it's the scientists it's the leftist media it's the academics like me it's it's, it's the democrats uh it's the, it's even establishment politicians which is one of the reasons why trump was so popular because he was had perception like an outsider guy who doesn't play like the other politicians do uh, and so when we asked americans in our surveys uh, just to get to the bottom of it when we asked americans in our surveys Say who they trusted for COVID information. It was actually shocking. We talk about this. I mean, it's one of those things that, like, you look at the you look at the charts, you look at the data, and you're just blown away by how strong this is. But uh, say the more Americans, white Americans in particular, affirm Christian national theology, the less likely they were to trust the CDC scientists, medical experts for say COVID information. And as that went down, trust for Trump went up. He trusted Trump more than anybody, and more than the CDC, more than the scientists, more than the the experts, more than the researchers. Because for them it was all about okay who is who is our guy who is who is the inside uh, information for us, which is one of the reasons why like Trump's t- participation on Twitter. I mean, even though people like to talk about it as a free speech kind of thing, Trump's participation on Twitter when you have ninety million followers and you're tweeting misinformation twelve times a day from your bathroom, and you just don't really care. Uh, I mean, it's it's really difficult to overemphasize the the how toxic that was for our being able to grapple with covid covid is a great example of that. like why covid was this asteroid heading toward our planet that that theoretically should have united us <laughs> like, right like right. when you when you think about the kind of thing that we would we would come together as a world or as a nation at least and say you know what let's get past our petty differences so that we can work together to defeat the thing that it's killing people that's what it should have been yeah. uh, and yet we immediately polarized over it you had rejection of masks and rejection of vaccines even And a lot of that was because of spread of fear, misinformation. Trump was one example of that. I think places like American family radio, where I still like American family radio, where we are in Norman is, as that I, as far as I know of the only major Christian talk radio that is available. Uh, And if you listen to AFR, I mean, it's, it's, it's vaccine suspicion every day, right? Like it's, it's uh, it's, and so that kind of tribal, Mentality gives rise to a distrust of any kind of experts, and you only trust people like us people who are on our side. And that meant for the last five years, Trump. And that is a
1: fascinating. Um... Revelation, because over the weekend I was out in San Diego, California, at the Biologos conference. Uh, The founder is Francis Collins, former NIH uh, director, better known as Dr. Fauci's boss uh, for the last several years. Um, And Dr. Collins spoke about his incredible surprise. He is a profess, you know, professing Christian. uh, Wrote the book Language of God, which is remarkable. But he talked about his complete surprise at the rejection of the vaccine by a large portion of Christianity, and it all led back to this susceptibility of misinformation, believing misinformation and lies. And of course, without saying it, it led back to the President of the United States, Donald J. Trump. And so that's one of the other questions that we have for you, Dr. Perry. Why Trump? Why is Trump the Messiah of Christian nationalist, because you look at this guy and on, I mean, at every level, he is everything that a person of faith would think this is, this is not the person we want to lead us.
0: My favorite story about that Sam, is my parents are both Trump, anti-vax, anti-mask, um, all of those things. And in like 2016, I asked my dad, "Is a dad, if I was friends with Trump's daughter, would you let me spend the night at their house? Like, would that be a safe place for me? And he said, oh, absolutely not. And I said, but you want him to be in the White House. Make it make sense. So how do you square this?
2: Right, right. So, uh, you know, I think the best example I can think of is Tony Perkins was was asked, uh, you know, tw- maybe 2018. Um, he was asked by Politico hey, the Stormy Daniels thing, you know, like mm. help us make sense of like why evangelicals could support a president who apparently paid off a porn star that he'd slept with, you know, while his wife was recovering from pregnancy. Um, and, 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 and Tony Perkins said we were willing to give him a mulligan. <laughs> and, uh, and, and the way he explained it was, uh, you know, we evangelicals uh, we're tired of being pushed around by Obama and his leftists. And we were glad somebody was willing to step up. And, and, bully. and I think that's the best articulation of like what Trump meant to them. He was a guy who promised like, you guys are being attacked. Christianity. And I have quote after quote after quote that, that, that like I have these all of, kind of on the file. Christianity is under siege. They are treating you badly. What happened? The, the media, the politicians, they've forgotten you. I will be the person who goes to fight. For you, he said this in 2016. Christianity will have power. If I'm in the White House, we won't need anybody else. I'll, we'll we'll say Merry Christmas again. <laughs> we will, you know, all of these things. Christianity will have power. You're going to have to be. You're going to have someone representing you very, very well. And so it was that promise of uh, of I, I will be the person who fights to to make a country, our country, not just great again, but Christian again, uh, for people like mm-hmm. us again. And we will we will marginalize those voices that we feel like have tried to take uh what is what is ours, the leftists, the socialists, the globalists, the the immigrants, the Muslims, uh, the people who are not like us. And so uh I, I really don't you, know, you do have some evangelicals who really I think have tried to wrestle with this big this dissonance by just lying to themselves, like the James Dobson talking about a baby Christian or or something like that. Mm-hmm. I think you have a lot of people who are just at least live in reality enough to acknowledge that, like, hey, Trump is not a Christian. He's horrible. Yeah. Uh, it was it was person. just of <laughs> a person. But you know, but it's, it's surprising because I was in uh, I was in Dallas, First Baptist Dallas, when Trump was giving the Christmas address, in December. So this December, of course, I had to drive down to go see First Baptist Dallas and go witness. You didn't
1: to have Christmas to, Christmas. but you did. <laughs>
2: uh, <laughs> professionally <laughs> obligated there you go there you go <laughs> i could not could not live with myself as a sociologist who studies these things and not do that and you know at the end of this at the end of his little message which was you know as chaos as always uh with trump at the end of his message he he walk he's walking off stage and he starts the chant usa usa and so like first all the first baptist mm-hmm. Mega Church dallas is 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 saying this and the people behind me change the chant to say we love you, we love you, we love you. And, you know, I'm just kind of, what is, what is going on? (laughs) But it just shows that like, these people were not just some of these folks at least. Yeah. We're not just like, Hey, he's the guy who fights for us, but, but they genuinely uh, thought he was like, no, I like this guy.
1: Yeah. Mm -hmm. It almost, and we are, you know, dead set in the middle of Lent, Uh, Holy Week's coming up uh, pretty soon. And it just reminds me of that you know that encounter right before Jesus was crucified of the decision that the crowd had to make.
0: And, Give us Barabbas, and they mm. said,
1: "Give us Barabbas," and that's exactly what I see because I'm I, I just mesmerized because there are other politicians out there that are you know more akin to their ideology that believe in their ideology, uh, certainly have more values. I disagree with them wholeheartedly. Ted Cruz, for example. Right. You know, I disagree with about everything Ted Cruz that comes out of Ted Cruz's mouth, but right. at least you know he, he's married, he's a good family man. You know, right. and uh, just I was just mesmerized that they went after this guy. This was yeah, the, so, this was their guy. Well, and,
2: and, and just some more on that, like there was this narrative after the 2016 election. And I think a, a lot of evangelical leaders were embarrassed by this, obviously, and were trying to reconcile. I think the witness, the poor witness, it's like it's, it's bad public witness that, like evangelicals, eighty mm-hmm. percent or eighty one percent of evangelical more did so in 2020 um uh, and i think they were trying to reconcile this by saying hey uh they you know once it became clear that trump was going to get the nomination of course they just voted for the party, the party rather than the, they voted for the team rather than the coach you know what i'm saying like they voted for and they held their noses right. and voted for trump and that actually is false like we actually have data from january 2016 uh that that showed how trump stacked up against Cruz, Carson, Bush, Rubio, all of these guys with, like, evangelical bona fides, and Trump was slaying them all, among white evangelicals, among white church going evangelicals, among people who affirmed uh, a stronger place for religion in the government. Like, Trump was always uh, coming out ahead, even before it was a foregone conclusion that he was going to get the, the the nod as the president. And so it it really wasn't just kind of a, a marriage of necessity. Evangelicals really wanted him. They really yeah. wanted that guy, even when when Pence, like Trump's during Trump's first impeachment. Uh, if Trump would have been kicked out of office, Pence would have been the president, right? The right, exactly. Right. Legitimate evangelical credentials there, mm-hmm. but they don't want Pence. They, they want wanted to hang who's...
0: Pence, if you remember. Right,
2: right. Yeah, and and this is what Phil and I said. Well, you know, they they didn't want a guy who fights. They want a guy who fights for Christians, not fights like a Christian. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? Like yeah. that's the yeah. last thing they want is a guy who fights like a Christian. They want a guy who right. fights for Christians. They don't care how it happens.
1: Yeah, sure. All right, so I could I could literally talk about this all day with you, Doctor Perry, because I'm just fascinated sure. by it. Well,
0: let's meet at the Mont after this. okay? <laughs> <laughs> uh, First world's on me. Uh, uh,
1: for those of us who are, for those of the audience who are not from Norman, that is our local uh, college hangout spot. So, uh, but uh, the last question that I have before I turn it over to Autumn is, okay. This could be really depressing. And to be quite honest with you, it is really depressing when you look at the data and some of the outcomes of this data. But there are so many good people out there who are right. faithful to their tradition, who are following Jesus, doing some remarkable things, who do not prescribe to Christian nationalism. Us, for example, one of your co-authors in the report, uh, Amanda Tyler. Uh, with the Baptist Joint Committee. I actually chaired the Baptist Joint Committee years ago. Amanda's a, a colleague of friend mine. Friend of the pod. Friend.
0: She's a friend of the pod. Yeah, we, in <laughs> fact,
1: we did the video work for Christians Against Christian Nationalism. We were part of that movement. Um, so what can people of good faith do to combat this rise in radicalism of Christian nationalism?
2: Uh, I think, uh, yeah, my advice would be to reject... Uh, I think the kind of partisan rhetoric that is like exacerbating this, I think the demonization of other, of other groups. I mean, it's unchristian for one, but I think that it's uh, beyond, beyond I think the moral obligation we have to live out Christian values and to, and to, and to avoid that kind of thing that would, I think, uh, imprecate our, our own, uh, our own witness and compromise our own witness. I think publicly uh, I, I would think that it, it is also ineffective politically. I, I think the polarization only benefits the radical right mm-hmm. uh because they get to they get to to own that that we're persecuted they hate us they really do they hate us and they're coming after us and the language the, they're so nasty and they're so like look at them you know and i think engaging in that kind of thing rather than trying to defuse it it doesn't mean it doesn't mean roll over it doesn't mean uh it doesn't mean give in it but it, it does mean that we we have an obligation i think not to make that situation worse by being just as ugly as the people that we feel like are being ugly. So I think that's just kind of a, a, a Christian approach for one. Um, but also, I mean, and also a politically smart approach. So like if you, if you, if you um, in their book, Levitsky and Ziblatt uh, uh, the Harvard professors who wrote how democracies die, which is a fantastic book. And it's something I recommend to be required reading for us all uh, what, one of the things they do. And I'm so glad they do at the end of this book is they say, Hey, what, what should American, what should say the democratic party do if, uh, and they wrote this before the 2020 election, the democratic party double down and do just what the republican party did over the last however many years and they say absolutely not like that is just going to exacerbate the problem that's going to make it worse what what we need to do is we need to build coalitions with people who like say jamar tisby and i alongside somebody like andrew seidel who is a great guy who happens to be an atheist but we also happen to be united in our concern together that white Christian nationalism is a problem and it's toxic and it, it, it is not going to produce the kind of democracy we feel like is good for us all. So I think as Christians, we have to be willing to partner with people uh, who are in agreement uh, and rightly, rightly bothered by, by this kind of emergent ideology so that we can actually get things done uh, for our country, for us all, not rather than just sink into just this tribalistic partisan battle where it just becomes sports on tv like we sure. just you know <laughs> i hate i hate the other politician like i hate tom brady or, or the patriots or or whoever right like that's that's when it's gotten so toxic that this right. is it's it's devoid of all kind of connection to reality and it and it, and it uh, and i think it, it 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 prohibits us from being able to accomplish anything
1: well, damn it, Autumn. Leave it to the sociologist to teach us to, uh, the golden rule and bring Jesus into this—that we should treat yeah, others I as know. we want to
0: be treated. I know. <laughs> well, but, okay, and I'm, I'm, I am going to ask our last question. But earlier on, you were talking about how the right has done, um, like almost a better job of like lining up behind like one sort of party line because they are a little more, you know. One note, uh, for lack of a better word, and where the the left is a bigger tent, it's harder to have a unified rallying cry. And I think what you were talking about and being, you know, kind of putting aside sort of our differences and finding spaces that we can hold together and be strong is so important. It's hard work, but it's so important for us to do that.
2: Yeah, absolutely, and it is hard work. It's 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 easier, frankly to just go for ideological purity uh and to just draw hard lines and to say you're in and you're out or you're and in yeah, out loud. just
0: just be yeah. louder just to be than loud men.
2: loud and angry and shout you know shout people down rather than to come to the table and compromise but that is in its best in its best form politics at its best is is compromise right. so that we can figure out how to best serve all of us and especially in a in a country as diverse as the United States we can't unite around a common ethnoculture like that is just not it's, it, it's not where it's not who we were but it's definitely not who we are and it's not who we're becoming and so uh that ship has sailed that reality is gone and it is fantasy to think that we can go back so we have to rally together around common creedal commitments to things that we see in the declaration of independence full legal equality natural rights of 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 human beings uh government by the people right like uh, and and these are things that we can all celebrate and say like you know what that's you know, we we are united as Americans in our commitment to liberty and freedom and equality. And what does that look like? Well, we've got to figure that out. and We can hash that
0: out. But those are the commitments. Absolutely. Well,
1: Dr. Perry, thank you so much for joining us at Good Faith Weekly. Uh, like Again, I, I could just talk to you about this all day. But before we let you go, Autumn's got one last question that she asked all of our guests. So, Autumn, take it away.
0: Our tagline at good faith media is there's more to tell in light of our conversation and your upcoming book in the state of our nation. What is your more to tell?
2: Uh, I see, I see one, one positive trend and one warning uh, along with that positive trend. So the positive trend is that and uh, multiple survey sources. Now everything from Pew to public religious research Institute to the Baylor religion surveys to the general social survey, a bunch of different data sets. We see that. Adherence to Christian nationalists, say ideology or Christian nationalist views is declining as in 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 a in a percentage of of, of Americans, uh, more Americans are not subscribing to Christian nationalist ideology and part of that a large part of that in fact is demography like older generations are dying off younger generations are replacing them. Because they won't mm-hmm.
0: take the vaccine, right? I mean... <laughs>
2: <laughs> That's part of the story, I'm sure. Yeah. But it's, you know, there's, there's this kind of, along with, I think, uh, a, a slowly moving rise in secularism, you do see a slow decline in Christian nationalist ideology. But the warning there is that just because Christian nationalism may be declining among the general population doesn't mean people who really do subscribe to Christian nationalist ideology aren't becoming more radicalized and militant as their group shrinks. Right. Christian nationalism isn't just something that is stable. it responds to threat. It resp- it grows, in fact, in response and not only in its size but in its radicalism and its militancy, in response to perceived threats. So as this group of people continues to diminish and they do feel even more aggrieved, more targeted and more persecuted, then I think you have the potential for an explosive uh, kind of response. And so even though I think we are heading in the right direction in terms of this kind of ideology, Minimizing in the mainstream, I think we actually need to be vig- vigilant uh, that we diffuse any kind of radicalization on the right that I think would be on the, on the horizon.
1: Well, Dr. Samuel Perry Uh from the University of Oklahoma, thank you so much for joining us this week. Uh, It has been a, a delight, sir, to talk with you. Dr. Perry's forthcoming book, The Flag and the Cross, will be out April 1st this week. So make certain that you purchase it wherever you pick up your reading materials. So Dr. Perry, thanks for joining us. Thanks so much for having me. And to our audience, we want to thank you for joining us as always. And Autumn and I will be back next week with another great guest. And until then, keep living good faith.